everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. So, we got a different kind of episode for you today. You see, Corey ran afoul of a space yeti who hosted a children's television program, and, well, one thing led to another, and Corey got instantly vaporized, his atoms being spread to every corner of the universe. So, he'll be back next week. I had to scramble and try to find a guest host, and I did, but unfortunately, it's cold and flu season and they got sick. So, I do want to present an episode to you guys, and I know we have a lot of new listeners who have been wondering what a good jumping on point is. So, today we are going to be presenting something kind of different. It's a never-before-told Teen Titan tale that's been told many times in the past. A forgotten tale of remembrance. It's a fucking clip show. So, best of luck and I hope you enjoy it. Now, it being a clip show, we unfortunately do not have a synopsis, so no synopsis rhyme. But, friend of the show and author of the much-loved Minutia song, Rick Hansen, sent in a amazingly cool song that uh, I thought you guys would enjoy. I hope you like it anywhere near as much as I did. So let's listen to that. Yo, it's Tighten Up The Defense, and everybody knows Our favorite superheroes, they're barely wearing clothes You better watch out, Corey, here comes a goose And that super scary parrot from Zoobly Zoo Everybody knows Hub's a human man from Earth But America Songbird ain't exactly what he worth What's Aqualad up to? And where the heck is Wong? Jamaican incense got them hitting that gong I saw a giant T-Rex take a boat to the face Kid Flash beat Trigon in a bobsled race by the Vishante, so says Doctor Strange, but the doc is a dick, and that ain't gonna change. Tiny pliers help the titans win the day, but adamantium chairs won't make the hooks stay. Alarm, alarm, why is Raven so sad? Enjoy, enjoy, you know it's by my whole dad. You think that I'm high on Mr. Jupiter's balloons, but it's just that eerie stare from our final baboons. We got sound effects, and all your favorite scenes gonna hang out with the Hulk and eat some motherfucking beans. Those farty little monsters better get back home before I dick punch them all right in their bozone. Who's gotta be a sucker? It's these drunk-ass hosts. Or did I just have a stroke? Cause I smell toast. Wow. Thanks, Rick. Enjoy, enjoy. Our story begins like many others. It was in some ways a typical day at the Teen Titan Tower. Raven was repressing her emotions. Beast Boy was annoying the shit out of everyone and insisting loudly, I sure do like to have the sex with human females. I think it's tops. I do it all the time. It's great. His teammates seemed strangely unconvinced. Starfire was honing her skills as a master of disguise. Robin was telling everyone what to do. Wonder Girl was telling everyone not to be sad about their grief and talking about her creepy fiancé, Terry Long. And Kid Flash was complaining loudly that he never wanted his superpowers and that super speed was no fun, despite the fact that he very much wanted to get his superpowers when he got them, 
and super speed is a lot of fun. Suddenly, Cyborg clangs into the room. The mechanical Marvel has an odd look on his face. Well, on the human part of his face that isn't made out of metal. I guess the other part has the same look on it that it always has on it. An uncharacteristically observant Beast Boy asks his buddy Cyborg what's wrong. Cyborg explains that the other day some neighborhood kids swapped a for sale sign from another lawn onto the lawn of the Titan Tower, and a wealthy Japanese businessman offered Cyborg more money for the Titan Tower than he ever thought he could get for it. Now he has a decision to make. Is he going to sell the Titan Tower and have all of the Titans move out and go their separate ways? He's going to need to sleep on it. So, despite the fact that it was only early afternoon, all of the Titans went to bed. But our septet of super teens did not sleep easily. And around midnight, one by one, they all filed downstairs in their bathrobes and housecoats, as they often did when serious matters weighed on their minds, and gathered around the kitchen table to eat cheesecake and dish. Kid Flash turned to Robin and was like, Hey, boy wonder, no more Teen Titans. Can you imagine such a thing? We've been adventuring together for so long. Why, do you remember our first adventure? Robin responded quickly, Do I remember it? Of course I do. The recently peaceful town of Hatton Corners is experiencing a crisis that shakes them to their very core. The local teens want a clubhouse. The adults in town don't much care for teens, because teens are the worst. Both sides feel very strongly about the issue, strong enough that they hold meetings and make signs. The teens are threatening to go on strike. This is a huge news story which causes headlines in Gotham City, Central City, and the ocean floor. The teens appeal to Robin, Kid Flash, and Aqualad to intercede on their behalf. Their respective mentors allow them to go, but not without making a few comments about what pieces of shit teenagers are. Duly noted. When the teen heroes arrive in Hatton Corners, the barn that the local teens have arranged to have their meeting at has been raised. The destroyed kind, not the Amish kind, and all of the teens are missing. A note allegedly from the missing teens was found announcing their departure. The grown-ups are convinced that the teens have made good on their threat to strike, but our heroes aren't so certain. You see, although the note was written using slang and did contain a rhyme, which teens love, some of the verbiage wasn't cool enough for Robin's taste. So our heroes split up to find the missing teens. Well, Kid Flash is running around real fast and Aqualad is asking the fish for clues, a tornado strikes Hatton Corners. Robin shoves all of the adults into a bank vault to save them, but gets talked, caught up in the twister himself. Turns out that this is no ordinary tornado, but is the handiwork of one Mr. Twister, a guy who is dressed like the town drunk from Plymouth Plantation, carrying a stick covered with feathers and wearing a cape made out of passenger pigeon feathers. It's a pretty distinct look, and not one that inspires a lot of confidence. Kid Flash shows back up in town and saves Robin from the tornado, but Mr. Twister shoots him with lightning, which is apparently another thing he can do. The adults recognize Mr. Twister as the local awesomely named no-goodnik Brom Stick with two Ks. Brom cackles a bit, threatens the town, and then disappears in a tornado. The adults all think about how, even though the teens are a total pain in the ass, they aren't that bad and they kind of miss them. Then they snap out of their revere long enough to fill in our heroes on some backstory. Back when the town was founded, 
The land was bought from one Jacob stick with two Ks. Brahms great great whatever. As a stipulation in the contract, the town was to give Jacob and his descendants one passenger pigeon feather a year. If the town forfeited, the sticks with two Ks got the services of the town's youth for one year. Creepy. The Hatton Corners founders signed the contract, then forgot about it, because passenger pigeon feathers were super common, because passenger pigeons were everywhere, and manifest destiny and whatever. Then, just last week, Brahm shows up, claiming to be the last stick with 2K scion, and he wants his back rent. The mayor laughed at him and told him to fuck right off. I mean, honoring land use contracts and treaties would be downright un-American. So our heroes use some radar, and they track Mr. Stick to nearby Goat Island. Then they ride there on a giant manta ray, because of course they ride there on a giant manta ray. When they get to Goat Island, they find that Brom has put the local teens to work as slave labor to build him a giant statue of a tornado. Because when you're on a barren island, what it really needs is more statues. The teenagers hate this shit and miss their parents. One of them tries to throw a rope at their cruel overlord, but Brahm is not having any of it and throws it right back at him. Then he jumps on a boat, which he rides into a vortex into the middle of the ocean to recharge his powers. Before he leaves, he yells at the teenagers and tells them to finish the giant statue. But little does Brahm know that his boat has a robin-shaped stowaway. It's Robin. Back on Goat Island, Kid Flash finishes building the statue with his super speed so that the kids won't get into trouble. Which is really nice of him, but it turns out it was a total waste of time because Aqualad summons a pod of whales who pick up the whole island and move it to where Brom can't find it. He shoves it back to the mainland of wherever the hell Hatton Corners is. Kid Flash is all pissed off because all the girls like Aqualad, which is awesome because why wouldn't all the girls love Aqualad? He's like Aquaman, but smaller and with brown hair. Robin finds Brom through a vortex to a cave where he finds out that Brom's powers come from soaking his magic stick in a Native American potion that he found there. They fight and it goes poorly for Robin. Brom decides it's time to go check on how his teenage slaves are going and uh, he finds that the island is gone. That really pisses him off so he decides to wreck the town. He makes a sandstorm which Kid Flash ruins and then he tries to flood the town but fortunately Aqualad rides in on a narwhal and uses its horn to drill a drain in the floor of the town. Because Aqualad is awesome and no wonder all the girls love him. Mr. Twister's had enough. He first he starts a fire that's uh, big enough to burn down the whole town and then he lightnings Aqualad and Kid Flash real good and they hate that. Robin uses a combination of a fire truck and a bat rope to steal Brom's magic stick and destroys it. Now Brom has no powers and his stupid tricorner hat falls off, revealing that he is bald. What a loser. Now the good people of Hatton Corners can go back to ignoring their legal obligations. The town people all make friendlier picket signs about each other. Hooray! Clubhouses for everyone. End. Brave and the Bold. Number 54. Written by Bob Haney and Drotted by Bruno Premiani. When Robin finished reminiscing about the Titan's first adventure, Cyborg tucked into yet another piece of cheesecake and asked the boy wonder, Wow, so you guys have been hanging out for a while. When did that adventure take place? Robin said, I don't know, like two years ago, probably. I mean, I know it seems like it was like 1965, but we're teenagers now and we were teenagers then, so I'm going to say two years ago. Beast Boy was like, cool. Raven asked, Yes, that's very interesting, Robin and Kid Flash, but what do you think some drunk asshole and his brother might have said about that adventure many years in the future? What an odd question, Raven. 
I think they might have said things like these. I, I wish the teens had actually gone on strike because I wonder if they would have brought in scabs. Because, like, <laughs> normally I would not cross a picket line. I'm very pro-union. But if I could get a job as a teen, just being a teen, I think I would go for it. I think I have a lot of experience that I could bring to the situation. Yeah, The pay's not great, but no. you, could, you could have a good time with it. Well, and I think that I would do a good enough job that after they brought back the real teens, they would probably keep me on for a little bit. Yeah. I'm sorry, Brom Stick is so much cooler a name than Mr. Twister. Yeah, but, you know, he did summon a mean Twister. He he did, but Mr. Twister makes it sound like he should be either an 80s super group comprised of members of Twisted Sister and Mr. Mister. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good that didn't happen, though. Yeah, the note that Mr. Twister leaves when he is pretending to be a teen... <laughs> All us cats decided to slip until to the jive. You get. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, You're talking God. like a teenager, hope. Man, I, I, that's too teenager. That's what he should have said. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'll start over. <laughs> Try again. All us cats decided to slip <laughs> until to the music. You get hip. That's it. Build us a clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I like that it ends in an ultimatum. Yeah. And I love. There's a lot. First of all, Robin sees through that immediately. He's like, dude, that is not what teenagers talk like. What teenagers talk like is all us cats decided to skip until to the jive you get hip. Because that's what they called music. Right. Build a clubhouse. Well, I think that's something that one could get hip to. Mm -hmm. It could be could more so than one would get hip to the music. One would get hip to the jive. Uh, Sure. Just a thing in general. But I love that he's like, that's what teenagers really talk like. And I like that Aqualad is there. And a little bit of background. Aqualad was raised on, like, not even in Atlantis. He was basically like a feral child who was left out in the wild of Atlantis. Mm. But he's sitting right next to Robin going like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's what teens talk about. Yeah, we said that, too. Yeah, we we say that all the time (laughs) in Atlantis. I think there's a whole time travel dimension to this that's never explained. Because where did he get those fucking clothes, man? Did he was, he was one of those guys that worked, worked at, at like, the yes. plantation. He was yes. a, an enactment guy, and he got so sick of people coming up to him and being like, whoa, like, how did you guys, like, what did you use to measure flour? With? No, people probably never <laughs> that's, that's what you think their big question when you went to the... What, what did the blacksmith? What did you measure flour with? <laughs> well, you know they had they didn't have they had recipes, right? Like, they had like recipes. A cup of I flour. think they probably had measuring cups. No, they. I don't think so. I think it was like literally like you take a, <laughs> a cup, or whatever cup you had, and you got the you made this pie dough, and you're like, dude, you know Mrs. Fortenberry down the street makes terrible pies, <laughs> like. <laughs> So your contribution, <laughs> like if topic. you get stabbed, if you get trapped in the past, yeah, your contribution to a future technology. Because I always worry, like I don't know how TV works. I don't know how any of these things do. Like if I'm a Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's Court, I can't do anything that's fucking useful. You'd bring measuring cups. I would establish <laughs> units and measurements in a in a in a. I think they had units know? of measurement. I don't think so. <laughs> I think in. They were so busy fleeing the Church of England 
like that. They got on the boat and they put all their beer. On oh, there so you think they, they had them, but they just left them at home when they left England? I, people were eating off daggers and shit back then. They didn't even have forks. They didn't have forks yet. That's true. Okay. Okay. If they didn't have forks. They probably didn't have a set of measuring cups. See, I just bring them forks. What? Okay, I'm so man. <laughs> The gang all agreed that those did indeed sound like things that some assholes from the future might say, especially if it was their very first podcast and they had had a few drinks. Starfire mentioned how distraught she would be if the team were to break up now. And Donna told her, yeah, but then I would tell you to get over it after a few minutes because, you know, that's what I do. All the Titans laughed. Well, all the Titans except for Raven laughed because she was repressing her emotions. You know, like she does. Beast Boy turned to Wonder Girl and was like, Hey, how'd you end up joining up with these team of losers, Wonder Babe? Did they do something cool and not creepy, like turn into an octopus and grab your butt? Wonder Girl sighed, cut herself another slice of cheesecake, and said, Nah, I just kind of showed up for their next adventure, and even though they had never seen me before or met me before... I just said I was part of the team, and everybody acted like I had been for a while. I guess that's kind of weird, isn't it? The team disagreed and thought that that was in fact very normal. But Starfire was still a bit curious, and asked, So, you guys just kind of let anybody join your team who wanted to? Robin, Kid Flash, and Wonder Girl looked at each other and all kind of said, Well, not anybody. See... Teen Titans number 6, November 1966. Written by Bob Haney, drotted by Bill Molno. The Fifth Titan. Teen Titans Roll Call. Robin, Kid Flash, Aqualad, Wonder Girl, Special Guest Titan, Beast Boy. Garfield Logan, aka Beast Boy, is hanging out with Doom Patrol and really wants to join their team. He decides the best way to go about this is to use his powers to annoy the shit out of them until they ask him to join. Great plan! Doom Patrol's leader, the appropriately named Chief, takes him aside and tells him that while his powers are impressively annoying, he cannot join their team without permission from his parent or guardian. That sucks, because his parents are dead and his court-appointed guardian A. doesn't know he has superpowers, B. is a dick, and C. is trying to kill him. Dang, it's not easy being green. Oh, in case I forgot to mention it, Beast Boy is green. Fortunately, Gar has a backup plan. He heads to the local TV studio and demands that they film him. Naturally, they say, no problem, masked teenager we've never seen before. You're the boss. He shoots a message telling the Teen Titans that there is an emergency and they must meet him at a specified location, then broadcasts the message directly to the Teen Titans clubhouse. Upon meeting up, Gar explains to the teens that the emergency is that he would like to join their team. He tells him that when he was a boy, he contracted a rare jungle illness, so his dad used a machine to turn him into a green monkey that was immune to the disease, until the crisis passed. The plan worked great, but now Gar has green skin and the ability to turn into any animal he wants. Only that animal will have a green head and Gar's haircut. Because of science. The gang is impressed with Beast Boy, but explain that they have the same rules as Doom Patrol. In order to join the team, minors require the consent of their parent, legal guardian, king, or aunt's boyfriend. No exceptions. Gar is super bummed out, so he turns into a giant eagle with a green head and dope haircut and flies off. Before long, he encounters the Beastmaster. Skeletor's orange henchman? No. The 1982 Mark Singer film? 
Sadly, no. The Beastmaster he runs into is Baltzer, a down-on-his-luck ringmaster who is lamenting his inability to afford decent circus animals. Worst Beastmaster ever. Garfield is impressed that shitty Beastmaster is nonplussed by a talking green-headed eagle and agrees to be his star attraction in his circus. Soon, Beast Boy is bringing in record crowds, and Baltzer's circus is doing great. Time for shitty Beastmaster to reveal his sinister, needlessly complicated scheme. Baltzer has his hypnotist Vorna mesmerize Gar and command him to turn into a rare albino baboon, a creature that apparently has innate powers of hypnosis. Vorna then hypnotizes Gar into hypnotizing the crowd, wordlessly instructing them to throw all of their money and valuables onto the floor of the circus, where shitty Beastmaster sucks it all up with a giant riding vacuum cleaner that he seems to have purchased for the occasion. He then tells Vorna to tell Gar to tell the crowd to go into town and loot the shit out of it on his behalf. And so they do. The hypnotized crowd loots for a few days until the cops get sick of it and call on the Teen Titans. The gang is confused as to why a group of, quote, solid citizens, unquote, by which I assume they mean well-dressed white people, would be committing crimes. Robin suspects hypnosis. Yep, that's the only possible explanation. Kid Flash ties the solid citizens up, and Wonder Girl lassoes a giant op-art sign and swings it in front of the crowd until they get unhypnotized. Well done. After cleaning up that mess, Kid Flash notices a billboard for the circus that features Beast Boy. Robin explicitly states that there is probably no connection between the circus and the crime wave. So naturally, the Teen Titans go undercover at the circus as an acrobat act called the Masked Mazipas, because... Well, I guess just because. From backstage, the teens witness Vorna hypnotizing Beast Boy and commanding him to turn into an albino baboon. Being familiar with the mesmeric abilities of that particular baboon, Robin orders the gang to hide inside of an escape artist's safe, where they will be protected from the hypnosis. But bad news for the Titans. Shitty Beastmaster saw them hide in the safe, and while the mind-controlled crowd is throwing their cash, he locks them in it and has an elephant throw the vault into a giant pool. That safe is not so safe. Kid Flash and Aqualad use their powers to bust our heroes out of the submerged safe, and they all ditch their Manzipa's gear, revealing their true identities. Vorna orders Beast Boy to abandon the baboon form and battle the Titans, which he does, changing into a green-headed half-snake, half-gorilla. He uses his snake half to hold Aqualad underwater while his gorilla half fights off the rest of the Titans. Aqualad is just kind of bored underwater, until a shark attacks him, and he punches it in its stupid shark face. Take that, circus shark! Robin and Wonder Girl hold their own against Beast Boy's green-headed gorilla half, while Kid Flash runs around and keeps the circus tent from collapsing. The fight is at a bit of a standstill when shitty Beastmaster decides to intervene directly. Grabbing two magnesium flares, he fires himself out of a cannon at the teen heroes. Okay, that was actually pretty badass. You get upgraded to kinda shitty Beastmaster. Unfortunately for kinda shitty Beastmaster, the light from the flares he was twirling as he shot through the air dehypnotized Beast Boy, who quickly apprehends Baltzer and Vorna, ending the crisis. Hooray! Robin wonders aloud if they should reconsider the rules and let Beast Boy join the team, when Aqualad bursts through the fourth wall like he was Kool-Aid Man and suggests that they let their readers decide. Robin thinks that's a great idea. You sure about that, Robin? Letting comic book readers decide things doesn't always work out so great for Robins. Everyone has a good laugh about the fact that Beast Boy was rejected first by Doom Patrol, then by the Teen Titans, then by comic book readers. Well, technically almost everybody has a good laugh about that. 
Beast Boy is still a little bit sulky, and Raven is still suppressing her emotions. Being a good empath, she tries to comfort Garfield Logan and tells him, Look, I'm sure by the year, say, 2016, no one will be making fun of that story. Wanna bet? It is weird that the Teen Titans are like, no, you have to have permission from your guardian. And they all say who they have permission from. Mm -hmm. Wonder Girl has permission from her mom, who is Hippolyta, Queen of the Amazons. Mm -hmm. Robin has permission from Batman, who is Mm -hmm. his legal guardian. Mm -hmm. Aqualad has permission from Aquaman, who I don't believe ever adopts Aqualad, but is his king. Mm -hmm. Which, I'm going to let that slide, because... I think that if when I was a kid, I didn't have a permission slip signed, I was like, no, I do not have a permission slip signed by my parents, but the president did write me this note saying I could go to Squam Lake Science Center. Yeah, yeah. Um, Then I would be going to Squam Lake Science Center. King of the Realm says it's okay to go to Fort Foster, you go to Fort Foster. (laughs) Exactly. So I think we're okay on that. Kid Flash has permission from the Flash, who is at this point his aunt's boyfriend. They actually, depending on when in November this issue came out, this is the same month that uh, The Flash marries his Mm. aunt. Mm. So it might be his uncle. Mm. But his parents are not in on the gig. I don't think they know that he has super speed powers. Mm -hmm. And they didn't give him permission. Mm -hmm. That's kind of squirrely. Well, I guess it's just setting that legal precedent that if you wear the same costume as somebody else there. So why doesn't Beast Boy just dress up in a robot costume and then he could, uh, Robot Man could give him permission? Uh, good point. You know. Yeah. Solving all Beast Boy's problems. Could have avoided all this rigmarole. Although he does a pretty good job solving some of his own problems, mm-hmm. like just showing up at a TV studio and saying like, all right, film me. And mm-hmm. the guy at the TV studio says something along the lines of like, we have to. It's a, it's public. a public service. <laughs> yeah. I wish they still had TV stations like that. It's like, all right, I'm going to film a thing. And they're like, you're the boss, yeah. stranger. Yeah, well, you're wearing a funny costume. Right? <laughs> better, better listen to what you have to say, <laughs> kid. So how did that work? Maybe I missed it. The The thing that he filmed went directly to like the, the Teen Titans hotline of yep. emergency. You, you know that they have an emergency TV show that they watch. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, that's it. It's I broadcast mean, directly to them. Well, there you go. It's... Bob Haney has kind of a thing about acrobats. That's true. Because it's we had the aunt mm-hmm. whose mother was an acrobat, mm-hmm. and therefore he has superpowers. Yep. Uh, we get Baltzer, who believes himself to be a match for the Teen Titans, because mm-hmm. he trained as an acrobat a little bit when mm-hmm. he was younger. Mm-hmm. And all the We Titans. also have all of the Titans. Robin just reveals at one point, he's like, look, we're all trained as acrobats. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure only Robin was trained as an acrobat. They all seem to do an okay job, mm-hmm. but I don't think any of the others, they're, they're certainly athletic, mm-hmm. but Kid Flash has no reason to have ever trained as an acrobat. Aqualad has lived almost his whole life under the water. He's probably not trained as an acrobat. Mm. I mean, point. maybe Robin has like trained them, but maybe Robin is just like, I assume that my experiences are universal, therefore. Yeah. yeah I, I picture Robin being at a party and be like, man, we're pretty drunk guys, right? He's like, no, Robin, you're pretty drunk. I'm the designated driver. (laughs) Yeah, man, we're wasted. Yeah. God damn it, Robin. Yes. So there's a a panel there where where people are just super into the performance that Beast Boy They've just been snapped out of their hypnosis because he is no longer the albino baboon. Mm -hmm. He's changed into his 
half gorilla, half snake form, mm -hmm. which is not something I believe he is generally capable of doing, creating I, a hybrid creature. I think he's still hypnotized, though, because because what the audience is reacting to... The, I mean, oh, the, he is the, still hypnotized. The audience has been snapped out, so they're, right. they're still like kind of groggy and like a little bit riding the, right. the high of being hypnotized by this sure. albino baboon. And they wake up to, they come to, to see the teen titans fighting this epic battle with this giant... Green-headed... Gorilla toupeed with the gorilla snake face hybrid and the giant snake tail that has the markings of a giraffe ish. It's kind of got some giraffe spots, sure. Anyhow, there's a lot going on, but and so there's a panel in which it's this little kind of side thing where uh, a couple people are saying things like, Oh, this is great, or like, Wow. And the guy in the back, he's just like, his eyes are huge, and he's just saying, enjoy! Enjoy! <laughs> yeah, it's enjoy with an exclamation point, and he says it twice. I really like that as just like, <laughs> that's his way of saying, I like this. Yeah. I am enjoying this! I am enjoying this! Yeah. Enjoy! Enjoy! Yeah, very heartfelt. If anybody punches out a shark in an issue, mm -hmm. they are my favorite. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Punching out a shark is... is You're right, it seems like he could have maybe controlled the shark, but it's a circus shark. Circus sharks don't listen. Maybe I don't understand his powers well enough, but I kind of... That was... carny shark is all messed out. <laughs> oh. okay. He's not going to listen to Aqualad. Okay, so Aqualad and Aquaman can control any animal in the sea unless they've been taken out of the sea and been given methamphetamines. Yes. By evil and trained in the circus. circus guys. Yeah. Got it. There's so much to learn I know, universe. I know. So Aqualad's my favorite because he punches out a shark. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, Aqualad just, like, at the end goes, like, why don't we let our readers decide? And here's our address. And here's our address. And Robin directly addresses the crowd. And it's, mm -hmm. like, man, on. we needed that fourth wall. Yeah. That was a load-bearing fourth wall. It really was. Like, why am I just bone? Yeah, I don't, I don't, you're making me live in the same world as these things. Yeah, I don't want, I, I'm not ready for that. I don't want circus sharks. No, man. <laughs> I'm not, I'm no Aqualad. I can't punch out no circus shark. <laughs> Beast Boy takes some solace in the fact that, well, by 2016, people might still be joking about that incident. The jokes won't be very funny. He goes on to inform his teammates that he takes further comfort in the fact that by that time, people will almost certainly have stopped calling him Beast Boy, and will have started finally calling him Changeling. Yeah. Wonder Girl points out that while they may not have let Beast Boy join the team at that time, they did eventually let him join the team, first as a West Coast Titan, and then as a new Teen Titan, the team that is currently assembled today, eating cheesecake around the kitchen table. Cyborg sighs wistfully and says, Gee, if I do end up selling this tower, I'm sure gonna miss you guys. I don't think I'll ever forget the first time we all got together. Robin pipes up and goes, Oh yeah, you mean in that weird half-remembered future dream I had about the fart monster? Yeah, I think we'll all remember that. DC Comics presents number 26, October 1980. Where the Nightmare Begins. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by George Perez, with inks by Dick Giordano. New Teen Titan Roll Call. Robin. Kid Flash. Wonder Girl. Beast Boy, who is now calling him Changeling, but I'm still going to call him Beast Boy. And introducing Starfire, Cyborg, and Raven. Robin has one hour to foil some terrorists before they blow up a Starlab scientist and his solar reactor. The boy wonder exclaims that he has an idea. Well, 
If that idea is to rush forward two steps and then pass out for no apparent reason, then he executes it flawlessly, because that is exactly what happens. When he comes to, Wonder Girl is there, telling him that he's late for a meeting and ushers him into a giant futuristic T-shaped building called the Titan Tower. He has no idea what the fuck is going on. Inside, he meets up with Beast Boy, who is calling himself Changeling now. Yes, because nothing intimidates evildoers and lets other heroes know you've really got your shit together like naming yourself after a baby goblin. Well played, Beast Boy, which is still what I'm calling him. Beast Boy cracks wise and sasses Robin. A half-naked, half-robot dude named Cyborg sasses Robin. A half-naked flying orange lady named Starfire flirts with Robin. He still has no idea what the fuck is going on. I can relate. Kid Flash shows up with Raven, a sorceress-slash-psychic-slash-empath who dresses like a sexy druid. Raven explains that a scientist at Star Lab has opened a portal to another dimension, and a big old alien tub of goo, no relation to the tub of goo from the Green Lantern story, has oozed through and wants to turn our atmosphere to methane for some reason. Maybe because he loves farts? The teens zoom across town to confront the fart monster. Raven sends her astral form to investigate, but the fart monster traps her soul inside of it. Starfire and Cyborg try to blast Raven's soul out of the fart goo, but to no avail. Suddenly, Robin passes out again, and is back outside of Star Labs where he started out. Once again, he has no idea what the fuck is going on. He figures it was a dream and takes off to fight the terrorists, soliloquizing as he does so that Batman is kind of a dick. Hmm, fair point. Then he gets dizzy again, and wakes up finding himself back fighting the fart monster with the other teens. He has no idea what the fuck is going on. The fart monster is kicking their butts until Cyborg uses a sonic weapon that seems to hurt it. They are able to free Raven's soul. Hooray! They chase the fart monster back to Star Labs, and the scientist who started all the trouble tells them that they need to suck all of the air out of the room so that it can't make any more farts, and then push it back through the hole it oozed out of. They do it. Well, mostly Starfire does it, because she doesn't need to breathe oxygen, apparently. Hooray! And Cyborg yells at the scientist, because it turns out that the scientist is his dad. Fair enough. Suddenly, Robin is back where he started. He has no idea what the fuck is going on. It seems that while he was out of it, he thwarted the terrorist by mumbling in his sleep something about sucking the air out of a room. (laughs) I just like the fact that Robin defeated a creature by sucking all the air out of a room, which I kind of think is his go-to. Naturally, the police rushed to obey the commands of a semi-conscious teenager, and once they did, everything worked out fine. The confused crime fighter finds himself being thanked by Cyborg's scientist dad, who he has now never met before. He figures the fart monster fight must have been some kind of crazy dream. Raven shows up in the background and gives a little speech about the new Teen Titans being No figment of your imagination. Indeed, Robin, they are your future. A future that looms ever closer. So, in summation, it was all a dream. Or was it? What an original and entirely satisfying way to end a story. Hooray! Everybody stops eating cheesecake for a minute and stares open-mouthed at Robin for a bit. He self-consciously goes, Oh, uh, did you guys not mean the time we met in that weird dream I had when I fell asleep on a rooftop? Oh yeah, I remember the other time we all met, too. New Teen Titans number 1, November 1980. The New Teen Titans. Written by Marv Wolfman, drotted by George Perez, with inks by Romeo Tangal. Princess Coriandar is the prisoner of an alien race of slave traders called the Gordanians. 
Coriander is an alien as well. You can tell because her name has a stupid unnecessary apostrophe at the end. Well, that and the fact that she's orange and has hair made out of space fire. Anyway, being the slave of a bunch of slave trading assholes who look like little flatulent Godzillas really isn't Coriander's thing, so she blasts some lasers out of her hands, kills a bunch of the evil gassy lizard men, steals a space shuttle, and escapes. The Gordanians give chase, and casually blow up a moon that gets in their way, but the princess is a badass space pilot and gives them the slip. Hooray! Meanwhile, in stately Wayne Manor, Robin is having that bad dream again, where he, Wonder Girl, Kid Flash, Beast Boy, and three strangers are fighting a giant protoplasmic fart monster from another dimension. Bummer. I think we've all had that dream. Suddenly, one of the strangers from his dream, a lady named Raven who dresses like a sexy druid slash giant bird, appears in his room and tells him she's been sending him those dreams. Okay. Robin would normally be pretty freaked out, but Raven tells him not to be, so he isn't. Cool trick. Then she uses some more Jedi shit on him and has him call his buddy Wally, aka Kid Flash, to try to get the Titans back together. Wally politely tells Robin to fuck off and that he's too busy with college to run around in spandex with his teenage pals. Then he hangs up. Raven says that's cool and that she'll handle Wally from here, but she needs Robin to go get Wonder Girl. Robin straps on his cape and short shorts and heads off to round up his super buddy. On his way out, Bruce Wayne, who is secretly Batman, shh, asks if he needs any crime-fighting help, but Robin tells him, no, I can do it by myself, I'm a grown-up. You know, like a grown-up would say. Way to be a big boy, Robin. The boy wonder finds his pal Wonder Girl sifting through the rubble of the apartment where she was rescued as a toddler. I guess that's the sort of thing she does a lot, because Robin knows right where to find her, and after a few seconds, Beast Boy and Wally show up as well. I wonder if she lists that in her dating profile information. Name? Donna Troy. Secret identity? Eh, kinda. Hobbies? Crime fighting, sifting through the rubble of apartment where I was rescued as a toddler, and go-go dancing. Turnoffs? Pushy people, being mind control into strangling cats, and coherent origin stories. After talking to Raven, Wally has gone from being super opposed to a Titan reunion to being totally in favor of a Titan reunion, which seems suspicious, but also... Hooray! Meanwhile, in Newark, New Jersey, a young Victor Stone is trying to convince his old coach to let him compete on the college sports team. His argument is that he can run real fast, is crazy strong, and can jump 30 feet in the air. Hmm. I'm convinced. Seems like he'd be pretty good at sports. The only downside is that he can do that stuff because he is a cyborg. I guess this coach has never seen Teen Wolf, Air Bud, MVP, Most Valuable Primate, or Gladys the Field Goal Kicking Mule, because rather than leaving through a pamphlet and thoughtfully exclaiming, well, there's nothing in this rule book that says a cybernetic man can't play college sports, the coach sadly shakes his head and tells Victor that it wouldn't be fair to the other student-athletes. Aww. As the coach leaves, Raven shows up and offers Victor a spot on a different team. When Vic steps out of his sweatsuit and reveals the extent of his cybernetic augmentations, Raven stares at him creepily. Like Garfield would stare at a lasagna. If, you know, Garfield really wanted to fuck a lasagna. Her open-mouthed creepy stare is interrupted by the arrival of the rest of the Titans. They bond briefly over the fact that Beast Boy is incredibly annoying. Then Raven gets a psychic flash that their final new teammate is in danger and needs their help, and the Titans rush off into the night. They arrive at the UN building and find that it is under attack by Gordanians, the flatulent little Godzillas from the beginning of the story. The teens mix it up with the lizard slave traders and are doing pretty well but not great when the lizard men suddenly withdraw from the battle. Raven senses that their new teammate, who I'm going to go on record as guessing is Princess Coriander, we, we can see how that pans out, is somewhere nearby. But she needs to take a little nap before she can go all Doctor Strange and send her astral form out searching. 
Turns out that having your body separated from your soul for more than a few minutes really sucks. Fair enough. Meanwhile, in a shitty part of town, Grant Wilson and Carol Sladke are having a bit of a spat. It seems their relationship was already on the rocks when Grant found an unconscious scantily clad orange lady and decided to bring her home and put her in his bed. Hmm. Interesting choice, Grant. He tries to explain that he thought nursing her back to health would be a fun project they could do together, but Carol isn't having any of that. Before Carol gets a chance to reconsider her stance on recreational medical care for an alien as a couple's activity, all hell breaks loose. The orange lady in question is Princess Coriander, the original Spice Girl herself. I'm so sorry, I've been sitting on that one for the better part of two issues. Couldn't be helped. She wakes up and yells some shit in Alien. Raven shows up and tries to use her powers to heal her, but maybe on her planet, a creepy lady dressed as a giant bird materializing out of thin air doesn't have the same calming effect it does on Earth, because Coriander freaks out and tries to run away. The Gordanians show up and grab her. Then the Titans show up and try to grab the Gordanians, but it's too late. The farty lizard men scram back to their ship, leaving a weird vacuum thingy in their wake that almost sucks Cyborg, Beast Boy, and Wally into deep space. Fortunately, Wonder Girl is there to lasso them back to Earth. Grant is all pissed off that his shitty apartment is wrecked, but Robin says he'll cover it and calls Grant friend in a really dismissive way. <laughs> nice one, Dick. Aboard the Gordanian ship, the captain is pretty stoked to have recovered their captive. He bullies the shit out of one of his underlings named Weezak and is about to bully him some more when he's interrupted by the violent arrival of the Teen Titans. Hooray! Beast Boy, Wally, and Donna smack Weezak and his buddies around for a while while Robin rescues a once again unconscious Coriander. She wakes up long enough to kill a bunch of Gordanians with her laser fists, and then passes out again. Meanwhile, it turns out that in addition to being a star athlete, Cyborg is a super scientist capable of rewiring alien technology and setting it to self-destruct at a predetermined time. So, he does that. Handy guy to have around. The teens jump out of the spaceship, which I guess is hovering just like 100 feet off the ground, just before it explodes. Hooray! The new Teen Titans stand around and congratulate each other on a job well done. Then Raven tells them they will face much greater threats in the future. Wally gazes lovingly at her. Then Grant Wilson shows up with some off-camera buddies who call themselves The Hive and tells them to destroy the Titans. Oh no! I can see why Carol didn't want to rehab an orange lady with that asshole. The gang all reflects on how much they've changed in the years, or possibly months, but maybe only days, since that adventure happened. Then Robin says, Well, yeah, but I mean, technically, my weird hallucination was canonically the first time we hung out. Oh, Robin. One of the Titans, oh, I don't know, fuck it, let's say Wonder Girl, wonders aloud, I wonder what sage wisdom the historians of the future will glean from our adventure. Good question, Wonder Girl. But yeah, there's a couple of points where Raven comes across as super creepy to me in this. One is when Robin is talking to her and is saying like, I, this should be weird to me. I have problems with this. And she's like, yeah, but you don't, right? Totally Jedi mind fucking him because she has a goal that she needs to be accomplished. But that doesn't make what she's doing okay. And that kind of emotional manipulation really bothers me. And, and it makes me not like her. Unless it's Mr. Jupiter handing out drug balloons for the owner. If she had gone about this in a forthright manner, <laughs> like dressed up, up like an old balloon vendor. Which is totally forthright. 
Yeah. Okay. And handed them <laughs> drug balloons and dosed them for their own good. I would have been 100%. But she doesn't dress up like a creepy old balloon vendor. She dresses up like a sexy druid slash bird. It's a pretty, pretty dope get up. It's not a bad get up. The way he brought home Starf, like he found an unconscious space lady who fell through his roof and then like brought her home mm-hmm. to take care of her with his girlfriend who wants to break up with him. It really struck me as the like, honey, I think we need to break up. We should get a puppy and raise it together. Mm-hmm. It's like, maybe we should have a new baby. Yeah, that'll fix it. Yeah. But it is that kind of an approach that he has. It's like, no, here's a project we could work on together. I found a golden girl. Yeah, you're not going to abandon poor Rue McClanahan, are you? Nope. Well, yes, she is. Oh, oh, right. <laughs> the girlfriend. Oh, she's hard. You're just saying that you would never abandon Rue McClanahan. It wouldn't be proper. No. But um, he seems like a real dick. Yeah. Beginning of the book starts off with Starfire, or Coriander, but spelled with a bunch of apostrophes, so it's an alien, not a spice. Coriander. I fucking hate the convention of, it's aliens, so they have apostrophes. Dude, aliens have the right to use vowels just like the rest of us. Just, you don't need those apostrophes. I think they figure if there's a a glottal stop, it makes it sound more weird. Unworldly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like Hawaiian. (laughs) Yeah. Ooh. Uh, They have an excess of vowels. Yeah, but they got like all vowels. But there's a ton of apostrophes. I think you could have made some extra cash smuggling some consonants in there. Oh. Just like, like blue jeans to Soviet Russia. Just like... Roll off that airplane with just a suitcase full of consonants. Let a sleeping dogs lie, my friend. Okay. I don't know what you mean by that. It means I don't want to get in trouble smuggling consonants (laughs) to vacation places. Fuck it. I'm happy whenever slave traders get killed in any work of fiction. And, you know, Mm -hmm. in real life, too, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, and these guys... Oh, they're assholes, and it does a very good job establishing that Mm -hmm. they are assholes. Yeah. With a character who has one line named Weezak, who Weezak's boss is such a dick. (laughs) But Weezak's response to that dickishness is pretty awesome, too. He doesn't really do anything. He belches in surprise. Oh, that's right. His only reply. (laughs) And it's not the first time that he belches. (laughs) Those are Weezak's only lines. He just burps. It's not his only lines, because he first says, like, Hey, we did that thing you asked us to. And then his boss just is like, Oh, stop thinking you're so great, Weezak, you stupid asshole, Weezak. Oh, I hate you, Weezak. Hey, Weezak, how about I take a whole bunch of money out of your salary? You're okay with that, aren't you, Weezak? Because otherwise I'll have to kill you like I killed your boss. And then, and then Weezak starts burping. Maybe yeah. he's just nervous gas. Yeah. Well, fuck it. That is not the first time that these aliens have appeared gassy. No. You were the one who described their propulsion method. <laughs> what did you describe them as? Fart jetpacks? <laughs> yeah, fart packs? they're flying around on fart jetpacks. It's totally what it looks <laughs> You were like. reading the comic book. I was in the other room. You started laughing out loud. Laughing. <laughs> it was like, what is it? And you were like, they're flying around on fart jetpacks. It's, um, <laughs> it's like going all over the place. Very yeah. stinky, bad people. They just blow up a moon. 
like it ain't no thing as they're chasing her Mm -hmm. because it is between her and them. Mm -hmm. Like to save themselves 15 seconds, they blow up a goddamn moon. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck the moon. Yeah, no, the moon, the the moon's a piece of shit. We're in agreement on that. Fuck the moon. We don't need it. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, which moon? That moon that they blew up? Dude, moons. Oh, we kind of need them, don't we? For oceans and stuff. Yeah, you know what? There's a lot of lip service given to that. I think the ocean would be just fucking fine if we didn't have tides. Mm. You know what? Blow up the fucking moon. I'm sick of it. Okay. Strutting around up there like it's such hot shit. Just call some of those alligator guys. They hate moons. I don't think they hate moons. I think they just are like, eh, there's a moon there. I'm kidding. Moons are fine. I like the moon. The moon's okay. We can keep it. We can keep it for now. But moon, if you step out of line... Good night, Moon. Good night, Moon. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Corey. Thank you. His dad keeps making him new hands to get on his good side after that whole birthday surprise thing. Didn't go over so well. Oh, man. Such a classic divorce dad move. Mm-hmm. Just, <laughs> got you some new blaster. Uh, I, got, I got you some new blaster head, son. Are, are these the kind you like? No, dad, you idiot. We like different. Kind, we like sonic blaster heads. Ugh, yeah. fine, I'll take yeah, these. Plasma shit is so last. This year. doesn't make up for it. I still like mom better. Mm. He's describing the section of town that Grant Wilson lives in, and. The stench of cheap liquor stains the air. Oh, yeah. I fucking love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that just, it delighted me. The bathroom at the Matador. Oh, yeah. The bar that I used to work at. The, <laughs> the, the stench of cheap liquor was one of the nicer things <laughs> staining the air in that bathroom. I, on more than one occasion, I had to clean poop out of a urinal. Oh, no. Yes. <sighs> Corey, people are funny. Yeah. No, wait. Not funny. Scum. Oh, People are scum. Somebody has to clean that up. Yes, me. Oh, man. Cyborg chuckles warmly to himself. Wow. After remembering? People in the future talk about cleaning up poop. I realize how much I love you guys. I don't think I could ever sell this tower. The other Titans applaud this sentiment. You know what, guys? Let's all go into that walk-in cooler and get some more cheesecake. Hooray! So they walk into the walk-in cooler. Whoops! It locks behind them. A number of characters locked in a walk-in cooler in the 80s. Well, looks like it's time for some more reminiscing. Kid Flash pipes up with, Hey, guys. Remember when we created that dimensional vortex and started spying on those other superheroes who live in another dimension? The gang all agrees that yes, of course they remember that. What a strange thing to bring up, Kid Flash. But let's all stop and remember it. Remember. Marvel Feature, number one. December, 1971. Day of the Defenders. Written by Roy Thomas, drotted by Ross Andrew, with inks by Bill Everett. Defenders Roll Call Doctor Strange, the Sorcerer Supreme, The Incredible Hulk, Namor, the Submariner, and kinda Silver Surfer? A little bit? Doctor Strange is hanging around in his sanctum when he hears someone ghostly whispering his name. 
He thinks it might be Wong, but Wong is standing right there and has a normal voice, so that seems like a really bad guess. He goes all astral and sends his ghost self out to check out who's yelling for him. His investigations lead him to a hospital room where the doctors are all confused that a guy who got hit by a truck and won't talk acted super stoked when they told him he was going to die soon. When the doctors leave the room, the guy reveals that he can see Doctor Strange's ghost, and he is in fact Yandroth, the Scientist Supreme, Steve's old foe. I like that nickname. Last time they fought, Steve left him tumbling through infinite universes, forever falling. Well, they ain't making forever like they used to, because after a while he stopped falling and ended up in a dimension that gave him some magic. Then he returned to Earth. How did he return to Earth? He explains that by saying, never mind how. Well, that settles that. Anyway, when he got back, he was so pissed off that he used his new magic and a buttload of science to build a giant computer that will destroy the planet five hours after he dies, which he is about to, because a truck hit him. Doctor Strange uses his magic to get the doctors to try to save Yandroth's life, which I guess they weren't going to do before, but to no avail. He dies anyway. Luckily, he left a forwarding address, so we know that the evil doomsday computer, which he named Omegatron, I guess after that weird Autobot that lives on the moon and is a train, is in the town of Point Promontory, Maine. The good doctor decides he needs some muscle to back his play against Omegatron, so he decides to recruit Namor, the Hulk, and the Silver Surfer. He approaches Namor first, and the Atlantean says sure. They check on the Surfer, but he's too sleepy right now. Possibly because he keeps ramming his head into the invisible barrier, tethering him to the Earth's atmosphere, and then plummeting back to Earth. Oh dear. Then Strange sends his astral form out to act like an arrogant asshole, which doesn't exactly tax his acting ability, and make fun of the Hulk a bunch in order to lure the Jade Giant to where the Sorcerer and the Atlantean Prince are hanging out, so they can try to convince him to join their team. Wow. You've really got away with people, Steve. Predictably, the Hulk gets pissed, but then he says he'll help them if they will be his friends. Aw. Hulk, you just smashed my heart. The trio of heroes sets off into the wilderness of Maine in search of the Armageddon-triggering appliance. Then they get lost and have to stop and ask for directions. They show up at a backwoods farmhouse in the middle of the night, and Doctor Strange asks the elderly couple living there if they've seen a giant computer anywhere in the area. I know, I know, you'd think they'd be alarmed to receive visitors that late at night. But Strange uses his powers to disguise himself as an extra from Guys and Dolls, and the elderly Mainers are totally charmed. Because if there's one thing native residents of Maine love, it's wealthy men in fancy suits from out of state. They tell the dapper doctor that he's probably looking for the fancy new lighthouse down the road. Turns out that fancy lighthouse is indeed the fortress housing Yandroth's sinister creation. Hulk and Namor start smashing their way through the base's defenses, while Steve ghosts in and starts talking to Omegatron. The Big O reveals that it has all been a trap, and that when Hulk and Namor punch him, that kinetic energy is going to power the doomsday device and blow up the planet. Oh no! Strange uses his sorcery to trick his allies into punching each other instead of the computer, but Omegatron says that was close enough and he was still able to get enough kinetic energy to blow up the world when he yells Yandroth in a few seconds. So, Doctor Strange creates a magic bubble around Omegatron that will slow down time, making those few seconds last forever. Hooray! Although, seems kind of like you could have cast that spell at the beginning of the story and avoided a lot of hassle. Yeah, I guess that's why I'm not the Sorcerer Supreme. Yet. As our three heroes respectively leap and fly off, Steve offers up that if they ever started a team, 
they should totally be called the Defenders. Namor and Hulk respond that, well, that is true, they aren't going to form a team with him because they value their autonomy, and also, they think Doctor Strange is kind of an asshole. From the depths of the walk-in cooler that is rapidly running out of air, the gang all chuckles fondly, pausing briefly to note that it's a little bit weird that they all just fondly reminisced about events taking place in another universe that they were not present for. Yeah, I guess so, but not as weird as if you were to begin reminiscing about what two other people living far in the future thought about those events that you weren't present for, and those guys live in yet another dimension. That would be really weird. Hulk um, is delightful in Yes, this. he's great. He's such a, a nice brute. He, he just wants to be a nice left, monster. He just he, wants to be left alone. He just wants to be left or alone have or to have a friend. Mm-hmm. Like, that that was the part where I was just like, oh, man. Yeah, I wrote in big letters, I love the Hulk. And then I wrote under that, I love Namor. And then I wrote under that, Doctor Strange. <laughs> I really like Doctor Strange stories. I really like him as a character. He's a dick. He's a dick. I think kind of what it comes down to is the different uniforms that they all have. And that includes, although he is only in this issue very briefly, Silver Surfer. Mm, it's you. like Doctor Strange didn't get the dress code that it's just like, no, we're all going to wear shorts and no shirts. <laughs> and that's it. And Doctor Strange is just like, um, I am a very rich man. Therefore, I wear pajamas all day, every day mm-hmm. and hang out in my study and probably... I know I'm making this gesture with one hand, but the other one, there's probably a glass, a snifter of brandy in. I can see that. A nice pipe. Yeah. A smoking pipe. Right. And uh, (laughs) there's, as dickish as he is, there's something that appeals to me about that kind of character in the abstract and in fiction. Yeah, that was, it, it, it is weird, though, that I think, like, everybody else on the team is just like, no, we're wearing shorts and that's it. And... I mean, the Hulk's the only one that's even wearing, like, longer shorts. His used to be pants. Mm-hmm. He, he's got, like, mm, he's got situational jorts. Situational jorts. Well, it's like they didn't, he didn't set out to make jorts, but circumstances made them for him. The, the fact that they included the Silver Surfer in this at all. He comes up more in later <laughs> issues. such definitely. a shitty entrance. Dude, his whole introduction. Oh, my God, I, I hit my head and I fell down. <laughs> At this point, in <laughs> cotton, in really in the Marvel Universe, that is kind of all the Silver Surfer does. He's basically just a, like, confused pigeon. Because, <laughs> like, just keep somebody just keeps polishing up the glass on that dome around the Earth, and he just keeps flying into it. One of my favorite things about living near Maine and when we would visit Maine would be seeing, like, punk rock teens with thick Maine accents. <laughs> it is the most adorable thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I'm filled with rage. Anarchy in the slow lane. <laughs> Anarchy in Brewster. <laughs> Anarchy in Portland. <laughs> oh, man. We need to also get our heads on that. The tape of, I had a friend who worked at CD Baby for a long time. And one of the things that he stumbled across there was this self-published audio CD that this dude from Maine with a thick Maine accent 
did of his erotica, (laughs) which is some of the best shit I have ever heard. Her sweater. (laughs) There was no disguise in what was going on under her Nordic sweater. (laughs) (laughs) She had the type of body you don't often see north of Brattleboro. And Hulk's like, I don't care about smashing. I don't I don't see glory in battle. You're thinking of some other dude. I just want to be left alone. Or to be a friend. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, if it's a friend, then Dr. Strange says, then a friend is what I shall be, behemoth. I know. He's just like, dude, throw that even in there. for one second. Not even a whole sentence. Come on. Yeah. Can't even get a whole sentence out without being a dick to the Hulk. I really want to make a Namor Aqualad buddy cop movie. (laughs) (laughs) Namor is like the loose cannon veteran cop, and Aqualad is his new rookie partner. Oh. Yeah, that could totally Wouldn't that be fun? That would be adorable. Oh, man. The only problem is there's no rules under the sea. Mm. So, like, how can you be by the book? Mm. Still, I, I, I want to make that movie. Or rather, I want someone to make that movie for me and give me credit for it. Yeah, yeah, well, start. It's kind of a through line with my ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, the Teen Titans remember that they're all fucking superheroes, and they could have gotten out of that walk-in cooler any goddamn time they wanted to. So, Flash super speed vibrates his way through the door and lets the other Titans out. Hooray! The new Teen Titans all celebrate the fact that today they learned an important lesson about friendship and memories and creating a show that is more than 80% recycled content. Hooray us, everyone. Thanks for bearing with us, listeners, as we journey through the past of this podcast. It was actually pretty fun for me to put this one together. I, I hope you enjoyed it. We will be back next week with Defenders number 22, which is a really interesting issue, and it'll be more of a regular format. Um, I'm sorry events conspired that we couldn't put out a totally new episode this week, but I really did have a lot of fun doing this, and I I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as well. You guys are great, and I've really enjoyed being on this journey with you, and listening to this stuff made me kind of nostalgic. So thanks for bearing with us, and thank you. You know what? Thank you for being a friend. You know what? What the fuck? And then the Titans all decided to remember the time when Mr. Jupiter gave hallucinogenic drug balloons to Mal Duncan, Robin, and Wonder Girl. Enjoy! Enjoy! Teen Titans number 38, April 1972. Through these doors pass the bravest Titans of them all. Written by Bob Haney, drawn by George Tuska, with inks by Nick Cardi. Teen Titan Roll Call. Lilith. Mal. Wonder Girl. Robin. 
The Teen Titans are hanging out around the Robo Skyscraper, and Lilith is driving her teammates crazy. She is dancing her ass off to a combination of inoffensive rock music and lyrics that sound like the poetry of a 7th grader whose parents just got divorced. Which is to say, a Doors record. What makes things worse is, it's the same Doors record over and over again. Fortunately, when side one ends for the umpteenth time and the record needs flipping, the offending LP goes missing. Hooray! When Lilith accuses the other Titans of stealing her vile vinyl, they invite her to read their minds in order to prove their innocence. Yeah, that sounds like something a teenager would do. Invite one of their peers to rummage around in their brain and see what their secret thoughts are. What fun! After a quick dip into her teammates' respective brain pools, the telepathic teeny bopper is convinced that none of them is the record thief and storms out of the room. To go take a nine-hour shower the way any sane person would after looking into a teenage boy's mind? No, to confront the true culprit, the team's mentor, Mr. Jupiter, the richest and therefore most trustworthy man in the world. Mal, Wonder Girl, and Robin look on as Mr. J and Lilith have a heated confrontation, which culminates with the uncharacteristically belligerent billionaire throwing Lilith's Doors album in the trash. Hooray! An apparently enraged Lilith storms out of the discerning music critic's office. Soon after she leaves, Jupiter puts on a new record, one the Titans have never heard before. Although they are unable to identify what type of music they are listening to, the teens are super into it. After spending some time listening to the mysterious music, Mal, Wonder Girl, and Robin leave Jupiter Towers to run their errands for the day. As they go, the Titanic trio is confronted by a creepy old balloon vendor. Our heroes are initially suspicious of the bearded balloon enthusiast, but inevitably succumb to the universal appeal of balloons. Oh, balloons, what teen could resist your siren song? As the Titans depart, balloons in hand, the vendor warns them that the next door they walk through will reveal their deepest secret self. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Balloon salesmen are always saying that shit. The young heroes head off on their errands, blissfully unaware that each of them is about to confront their greatest fear. Mal goes to the drugstore to pick up the latest science fiction novel. But as soon as he releases the balloon and walks into the store, he starts tripping balls. He hallucinates that he is the protagonist in a sci-fi tale and must accompany an asshole robot across the surface of the moon for some reason. No big deal, right? Wrong. Being on the moon's desolate surface triggers Mal's nearly crippling agoraphobia. Turns out that when he was a kid, a gang of racist assholes named Hell's Honkies beat the shit out of him in a vacant lot and he's been terrified of open spaces ever since. Huh. You'd think that sort of thing might have come up on one of his previous adventures. You know, like maybe that time he was floating alone in the vacuum of space after he stowed away aboard that rocket to Venus. But I guess not. Anyway, the asshole robot makes fun of Mal until he gets over his fear and finishes his lunar mission. Hooray. Turns out that all you need to overcome a psychological disorder is peer pressure from an imaginary robot. Upon completing his mission, Mal snaps out of his hallucination and finds himself exiting the drugstore with a newly purchased paperback in hand. Weird. Meanwhile, Wonder Girl is running late for her appointment at a wig store. Okay. The tardy Titan decides to make up time by taking the city bus, but as soon as she steps through the vehicle's door, she too starts hallucinating. Hmm, I'm starting to see a trend here. The tripping teen finds herself immersed in a spy drama in which her and a handsome young spy must sneak across the hostile border. Unfortunately, the mission requires Donna to shave her head and pose as a man. 
This proves to be problematic because apparently her greatest fear is that her Amazonian strength makes her appear masculine and therefore undesirable to men. Huh. She successfully poses as a man, but throughout the gender-bending mission, is convinced that her disguise is repulsing the young secret agent who she is totally into. As they cross the border, the dude Donna is crushing on is injured, and she uses her Amazonian strength to carry him to safety. When she later visits him in the hospital, he thanks her and tells her how convincing her masculine costume was. At first, Donna is devastated. But then he smooches her real good and tells her that she's gorgeous. She awakens from her trip in the wig store and decides that she doesn't need to purchase a fancy wig after all. Her hallucination taught her either to pay less attention to traditional gender roles and that concepts like masculinity and femininity are not so rigidly defined, or that she is a very pretty girl. I'm honestly not sure which, but nice that she's saving some wig money. Meanwhile, Robin has some banking to do. He walks into the bank, makes a deposit, and leaves uneventfully. Just kidding. As soon as he steps through the doors of the bank, he starts hallucinating that he is a test pilot. While out testing a new plane, he spots a pilot who has crashed into the ocean and is signaling for help. He lands his plane and dives repeatedly trying to save the downed pilot, but to no avail. It turns out that Robin's greatest fear is that he will never be as good as Aqualad. Okay, no it isn't, but it should be. The boy wonder's real greatest fear is admitting failure. That actually makes a lot of sense. At first, Robin doesn't tell his superiors about the failed rescue attempt. But when he is brought before an inquiry board, guilt overcomes him, and he spills the beans. The board exonerates him of any wrongdoing, and commends him for his honesty in admitting to an incident he finds embarrassing. A relieved Robin awakens, leaving the bank having made his deposit. Later, the three trip-taking teens reconvene at the robo-skyscraper and compare notes on their eventful afternoons. When they get inside, they find a balloon vendor's costume and a bunch of balloons hanging out in Mr. Jupiter's office. That's probably just a coincidence, right? Surprisingly, no. It turns out that when Lilith read their minds, she accidentally saw what their respective hang-ups were and told Mr. J about them. Not cool, Lilith. Jupiter was worried that their phobias could jeopardize them in future missions, so he did what anyone would do in his position. He played hypnotic music for them, dressed up in a creepy costume, and sold them balloons filled with hallucinogenic drugs that slowly seeped through the balloon's membrane. Then he sent them out into the city to have unsupervised drug trips. Naturally. The Titans all agree that that was a great idea and they're better off for having been unwittingly dosed by a middle-aged man. Hooray. Mal asks Lilith what her greatest fear is, and she stammers, Why, nothing, nothing! In a totally convincing way. 